In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, to the ages of all ages, amen. So uh, we're continuing our Bible study in Zechariah. Zechariah is the second to last of the prophets in the Old Testament, probably the most quoted book and the most studied book by the early church fathers. Um, and as we mentioned previously, I'm going to give an extremely brief summary. Um, uh, Zechariah was prophesying to the people of Israel after they had returned uh, from captivity to Jerusalem uh, to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And after they started rebuilding the temple, they, they just stopped for 15 years. And they didn't kind of continue rebuilding for 15 years. And... Uh, he was encouraging them to get back on the horse and start rebuilding the temple again. So, um, so, and the last chapter that we read together was chapter 3, where uh, there are sort of two prominent people who are leading the charge in the rebuilding, and those are Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel or Zerubbabel, uh, the governor. Uh, and both of them were under a lot of attack politically uh, from the people around them. And so they were not having an easy time. And that's probably why they stopped rebuilding. Um, that's probably why they stopped rebuilding the temple. Chapter 3 was a word of encouragement to the, the high priest which was Joshua at the time. And we uh, went through it in great detail, so I'm not going to go into all of it in detail now. But chapter 4 is a word of encouragement to Zerubbabel, the governor. And we find that these are like, and you're going to find here that these are sort of, God is using them as, as his right hand and his left hand to rebuild the, the, the temple to rebuild the proper worship, to rebuild the people of God. And in our own lives, you know, we need the spiritual side and we need also the very practical side. Uh, and any balanced advice that one gets, spiritual guidance, should have um, aspects to it which have to do with our very simple and practical life and also aspects to it that have nothing to do with this world but really testify to a greater, a greater world um, out there, right? And really testify to a greater life. So you're going to find that this chapter is kind of has two major sections. It's a very short chapter. Uh, it's only it's only 14 verses. Abram, maybe I could ask you to connect that iPad to the Apple TV, and you could kind of drive for us. Um, if you find a, a Bible for us online. So the whole chapter is only about 14 verses. Um, and, but, um, and you're going to find it's two main sections. This first section is about the lampstand. And he goes on and on about this lampstand. Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see what he's talking about there. And the second part, you find he's giving a very clear, specific word of encouragement to Zerubbabel about the governor, Right? about the co completion of the work. And he says very specifically to him, the work which you have started with your own hands, you laid the cornerstone with your own hands, you will see it completed, right? And I think a lot of the times we worry, we begin things and we worry that we're ever going to see them to completion. Maybe we'll run out of time, run out of money, run out of energy, or, or just run out of other resources, 
um, and, and not have what it takes to be able to finish, uh, finish the job. So we'll get started for, with verse, what, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who would waken, be wakened out of sleep. And we've, we find here that Zechariah had fallen asleep. Did he fall asleep because he was exhausted from all of these spiritual visions? Did he fall asleep because he was standing by Zerubbabel all along the way and all of this opposition from inside, all the, the, the Jews telling you, I don't know if we should build, I don't know now now's a good time, maybe we don't have enough money, maybe we don't have enough this, maybe, or was there, op- there was opposition certainly from the outside, political uh, opposition from the, from the north, the Samaritans were coming down and telling them this, and they're saying, t- saying we're going to tell the emperor, you're rebuilding your own empire here, and you're going to revolt, and all this stuff. So, in any event, Zechariah was exhausted and he was asleep. And so the angel wakens him from sleep. There are some beautiful verses in Ephesians 5.14. St. Paul says, Awake you who sleep and arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. And there's lots of other beautiful verses that, that have the same connotation in Isaiah 51.17 and Isaiah 52.1 and Isaiah 60 verse 1 and so on and in Romans and many many Bible verses are saying when I try to Google where else does it say you know awake you who sleep not really Google but like you know blue letter Bible is, the, is, the, is one of the tools I use all the time blue letter Bible you can look it up and use it right um, right it uh, there's tons of verses in, in scripture which are telling us Chop, chop, hurry up, come, wake up, wake up to enjoy, to enjoy the good things that God has for us. This kind of reminds me of, we took our daughters to Disney this year, and if you know anything about Disney, it's really expensive, and you really want to make the most of the day. And so, you know, usually we let our daughters wake up at whatever time they wake up, and then we tailor the day to when they woke up. Not that day, I'll tell you. At that day, my wife and I were probably up at 6. We had the girls out of bed in their pajamas, it doesn't matter, at 6.45. We were shoving breakfast down their throat. We were in the car by 7. And man, we were the, at the park by 8. And, and then we felt late. They're like the parking lot was three quarters way full, right? And we were telling them, awake, awake you who sleep, arise. And Mickey will give you Disney, right? And St. Paul is telling you, and Christ will give you life. Christ, light. Christ will give you light. And we find here the angel is waking Zechariah up and t- telling, telling him, wake up, wake up, you who sleep. Because I have something to show you. I want to knock your socks off, God tells Zechariah. Not quite, but almost. And he's saying to you today, I want to knock your socks off. That's how God is opening his message to you and to me today. And then in in verse 2, he says, And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I'm looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold and a bowl on top of it, and on the seven lamps and with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other to its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? So he sees this lampstand. Now, context. In the Old Testament, when God told Moses to make a tabernacle of meeting and all of this and that, he made a lampstand. Now, the tabernacle of meeting was divided into three sections. It was a tent, and surrounding the tent was like a, like a fence 
which sort of created a courtyard, right? So imagine your home, okay? Imagine your home, and imagine that you have a fence all around your home. So you have a yard around your house, and then you have inside the house, you have like two sections. The places where people are allowed to come into and the places where people are not allowed to come into, right? So the Holy of Holies was the place the high priest, only the high priest went in once a year and the Ark of the Covenant was there. Then there was an area, the Holy of Holies was, was in another area which was called the Holy. In the Holy was the lampstand and a table of showbread, a table that they put the bread offering on and an, an altar of incense. Specifically, the altar of incense was to the right, outside. This is our Holy of Holies over here, right? And the altar of incense was outside to the right over here. And then the table of showbread was over here. And then this seven-armed lampstand was over here. And then there was, there was a curtain over here that separated these two sections from the courtyard, which was the rest of the tabernacle of meeting. So, what was the purpose of the lampstand? To enlighten the area which was called the holies, where there was the table of showbread and the altar of incense, right? And so, what, do we, what could we understand from that? So, the lampstand, like, think with me, okay? We're going to need to get really, uh, for, I don't know what the right word is, primordial is the only word I can think of. Like, really, like, simple, okay? Like, understanding things just as they are. Forget all the symbols and all of that for a second, okay? The lampstand is this thing which is material. It's made of metal. It's made of gold. And it's material. You can grab it. You can hold it. And what's the job of the lampstand? The job of the lampstand is to carry the fuel, which in this case is olive oil, and a wick, and with that, to carry the fire. And what's the purpose of the fire? In this case, it's to enlighten, right? They probably weren't trying to generate too much heat with the fire. It was probably to, to give light. Why? So the priests could see what they were doing, and they could offer the showbread, and they could offer the incense properly, right? And so that's probably what all of that was for. Now, very basic here. The, the lampstand is physical, you can touch it, but its purpose is to carry that which is not physical anymore, but has, was physical and now was converted into like, I don't know, energy, right? Like the olive oil is a fuel which, you know, the, 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 the physicists and chemists in the room can correct me, right, is converted into energy. It's kind of like, I don't know, Einstein's e equals mc squared. Mass can become can become energy, right? And that's sort of the purpose of the lampstand, right? Now, what does that have anything to do with anything? With this whole book of Zechariah is about rebuilding the temple. What is the temple? The dwelling place of God. The temple is the physical place where you can go to find God. So it's a physical place. Yeah, sure. It's, there's there's, a, there's a, a picture right there. So you see the seven-armed lampstand um, sort of at the, at the sort of the bottom middle and the table of showbread there's a table with some stacked loaves sort of exactly opposite it and then in front of it and slightly to the right is the altar of incense in the old in the old books uh, liturgical books it's not present in the new books but in the old books it says the priest when he offers incense stands outside the sanctuary all of 
who sits on the throne. Nothing is blocking your view, but the priest stands slightly so you see during raising incense, the priest stands large mostly over here, right? During the litany of the gospel, the priest stands mostly over here. It's in the old books, most priests don't do that, they just stand in the middle now. But that doesn't matter. Anyhow. So this gives you an, a bit of an idea of what the temple looked like. And then inside, behind that, that bluish-purplish curtain, is, is the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, that the high priest went into only once a year. It was the high priest's job to manage the, the lampstand. He filled it every day. He trimmed the wicks. It was his job to make sure that there was light in the temple at all times. We're going to get into the meaning of all of this in a minute. But So what does the lampstand represent? It represents the temple. Remember Zachari the book of Zechariah is about rebuilding the temple. But who cares that they rebuilt the temple or they didn't rebuild the temple, uh, you know, uh, 2,600 years ago, right? Like, uh, or 2,500 years ago, like, uh, big deal, right? I'll tell you why we care. Because the temple here is the symbol of, of the believer, right? And we said... Several times we quoted St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 saying, Do you not know that you are the temple of, the Holy, of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? And so this whole book of Zechariah is about rebuilding our spiritual lives and building our souls to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we, the believers, are the physical abode, the physical home of the spirit. We are physical, we are material like the lampstand, but in us is something which cannot be seen, but it's an energy that can change and move and heal and do great things, which is the spirit of God. Another interpretation could be of the rebuilding of the temple of the lampstand is the, the incarnate logos. This is all about Jesus. Jesus was incarnate in St. Mary and she, and he is the, the he is the embodiment of the divinity. Again, a physical being carrying something, someone specifically spiritual, the Spirit of God, right? Can be the church, can be St. Mary. In, in, um, in the Sunday Theotokeia, in one of the parts of Midnight Praises that we sing on Sundays or on Saturday nights, we say, you are the lampstand made of pure, speaking to St. Mary, you are the lampstand made of pure gold carrying the ever-burning lamp. That is the unapproachable light of the world that proceeds from the unapproachable light. The true God out of true God who is incarnate of you without change. And, and we, could, we could go on. The whole fifth, fifth part of the Sunday Theotokeia is all about St. Mary, the lampstand, right? And we could go on and on about, um, about this. Now, something else that's really sweet. What was the purpose of the lampstand? To enlighten the holy so that the priests could offer the showbread, right? So it is the enlightenment which allows for the offering of the bread of life. So another interpretation is it's the word, it's the liturgy of the word. That's why we ins the church insists that you participate in the liturgy of the word to participate in communion. What, why, you know, what's this business of a rule that you, you can't have communion if you didn't attend the, the gospel? There's no such rule, okay? It's not like that. Our church is not a church of rules. And that's why when people come after the gospel, we give them absolution and so on. But we ask them, participate in the liturgy of the word. Allow, the, the, allow yourself to hear the word of God and for it to enter your heart and to change you as of, and to enlighten you and to enlighten me as a person so that I can receive the incarnate 
the incarnate word, the incarnate logos, the incarnate bread of life, which is incarnate on the altar. It says it's solid gold. What's the business, business of gold? Anytime you see the gold in scripture, you think of pure, you think of holy, you think of something heavenly, something spiritual, something unadulterated, something uncorrupted, something not mixed. It's not an alloy that has been mixed with other metals. It's pure, right? So this idea of purity and of holiness. And there's a lot of things that could be said about that. This is very much reminiscent of the, of the seven lampstands in the book of Revelation. Um, there was seven lampstands, and each one of those was a church. And the letters to the churches were the letters um, uh, that were uh, of the seven, to the, and the seven lampstands. Now, I'm going to kind of keep going. I'm, I'm kind of, I had a lot more detail to share with you, but I'm going to kind of just keep rolling here. Now, the funny thing is that Zechariah knew, if, if you were here in week one, you would have known that, Zach, you would know that Zechariah had a, a his, his grandfather was a priest and he was, he knew a lot about priesthood. So he knew clearly that the lampstand he was seeing looked a lot like the lampstand of Moses, but it wasn't quite the lampstand of Moses. What are the differences? One of the differences was it had this bowl on top of it. And then there were two olive trees Besides the bowl, beside the bowl, and they were dripping oil into the bowl. And from the bowl, there were seven pipes coming down to feed the seven branches of the lampstand. So, the lampstand of Moses was who was in charge of that and filling it and making sure that it stays on by day and by night and never runs out? The high priest. This one is fed from the olive trees. Very different. Hey, and is not fed by the hands of men, right? But is fed by, by the olive trees. And so this bowl on top represents the church, which is enlightened by the Holy Spirit, likened by the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord Jesus Christ talked about the wise virgins, he talked about ten virgins, five were wise and five were foolish. The difference between the wise and the foolish is that the foolish ran out of oil. Both of them started off with oil in their lamps. But the bridegroom took forever to come. They fell asleep. When they woke up, the, the wise and the foolish virgins, both of them, their lamps had gone out. But the wise virgins had more oil, so they refilled their lamps. So we often think that the, the, the foolish virgins forgot their lamps or didn't bring oil. No, they had oil in their lamps. And they had their lamps on, but their lamps ran out. But the wise virgins, they had a secret stash of oil and they refilled the oil in their lamps and this oil again oil whenever you see oil in scripture you think of the holy spirit or the work of the holy spirit or saint augustine says in this instance that it was it is the love which is poured into our hearts by the working of the holy spirit which is from romans chapter 5 verse 5 right and so you have this bowl which feeds which feeds the lamps constantly it's and which is fed by the two olive trees. So what are the two olive trees? Contextually, when we get to verse 14, um, Zechariah asks, what are these two olive trees? And the angel answers him and says, you don't know, these are Joshua and Zerubbabel, right? And so here he's saying, Joshua and Zerubbabel, okay, the leaders of the Jews at the time, are going to be the source of the energy, the source of the fuel, which is going to drive this lampstand and keep it bright and shining 24-7, 
right? Okay, that's great, Father John. That's what it meant, you know, 2,400 years ago. But what does that mean for me? What does it mean now? What are those two olive trees? Well, St. Um, Didymus the Blind tells us we could think of those as the theological knowledge as the tree on the right and, and worldly knowledge as the tree on the left and how both of them contribute to feeding our spiritual lives. And both of them are vehicles by which the Holy Spirit can work in us. He also says you can see them as the Jews and the Gentiles that together have come to form the church, which is the light of the world. And he says another way you could understand it is the New Testament and the Old Testament together cause a pouring out of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and that, that which is the cause of our enlightenment. If we go down to verse 5 now in chapter 4, Then the angel who talked with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now, at every chapter in the book of Zechariah, there's probably a verse we should memorize. In chapter 2, it was verse 8, He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. That was in chapter uh, 3, sorry. In chapter 3, uh, no, chapter 2, verse 8. He who touches you touches the apple of my eye. In chapter 4, this is probably it, verse 6. Underline this, memorize it, commit this to memory. God says to Zerubbabel, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and you shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Now what's he talking about here? He's telling Zerubbabel, he's telling Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? What's the difference between might and power? Here, if you go back to the original words, the word might here um, means like military strength, or like means the strength in numbers. So he says not by might means like even if you feel like you stand alone, even if you feel like you're David against Goliath, even if you feel like you're one man against an army, doesn't, doesn't matter, right? Nor by power, if you feel like you are weak personally, right? Doesn't matter, right? But by my spirit, says the Lord, by an unseen power. When somebody asks Jesus, where is this Holy Spirit? He says, the spirit is like the wind. It blows where it wishes. You know, you, you know, you feel it as it passes, but you don't know where it came from and where it goes, right? It's Jesus' description of the Holy Spirit. He says to him, a great, uh, who, who are you, O great mountain? When, the word mountain can often be understood in Scripture as adversity or obstacles. Or Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, get up and be thrown into the sea. And it, will, and it will be moved, right? Um, and so here he means, he means obstacles or adversities. There's, there's other interpretations which are also beautiful, but um, I'll leave them out for now, right? And from a historical perspective, Zerubbabel was under a lot of, uh, a lot of scrutiny and he was, he was give, being given a really hard time politically uh, by the people from the north, from Samaria and so on um, and so he, for sure he was discouraged you know and he had opposition from enemies around him he had an unstable economy right he had he, it would would have been very easy for him to say look nothing is working for me 
so I should just give up. And I think all of us have, have, have maybe moments that are, that are similar, right? And the answer, God is telling us, the answer to these problems is not strength in numbers. The answer to these problems is not more power, more resources, more money, more... The answer to all of these things is the working of the Holy Spirit in us. Really, truly, truly, during the days of the Apostles' Fast, we kept reiterating the same message over and over and over and over again. All our sermons and our Sunday series and everything was the same message. Only that which we do, which is in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, has any everlasting meaning. Look, you and I can't do something eternal because we are not eternal. Right? Only God is eternal. A really beautiful term that's given for God the Almighty. In English, we use the word Almighty. In French, they call him l'éternel, right? To, to describe the, the one of endless ability and endless power and so on. And, and we borrowed the, the word from, from the Coptic and the Greek, pantocrator, and we just use it in a lot of our, in our uh, you know, uh, prayers. Right? In English, the closest English translation to it would be the Almighty. In French, they use the word l'éternel. Right? And He is the one that can help us to do that which cannot be done by humans. Right? And so from a spiritual perspective, from a spiritual perspective, we, should, we ought to do the same. If we look, we find in the New Testament the same thing happens. You have a bunch of disciples who are uneducated, who their, their master that they had forsaken everything to follow just got crucified and they're hiding behind closed doors. You know, 55 days later, they're gallivanting through Jerusalem, preaching Jesus' name, and in less than a week, over 5,000 people joined the church. What happened? Just, just a month and a half ago, you, you were hiding like, you know, under a rock. And now, you know, you're standing before the high priests and telling him, you tell me, is it better to obey God or to obey men? Right? If God tells us to do so, I'm sorry. But even if you tell us to do otherwise, we will still do it. Where did they get that power? Where did they get that, that, that ferociousness in their, in their ministry and in their preaching? Right? Where did they get that? They got it from the Spirit, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And He says that to you, and He says that to me. Now, what's, in terms of the, the mountains and obstacles in our way, a thousand times in my life have I been up against enormous obstacles. And as I'm standing before the obstacle, I have no idea how I'm going to overcome this. I have no idea how I'm going to scale this mountain. And I do my calculations and I see how if I have enough resources and do I have we have enough money and do we have enough this and do we have enough that and as I'm as I'm doing my calculations I'm just taking one very cautious step in front of the other very cautiously putting one foot in front of the other but I'm not looking up I'm looking at what I have right and then all of a sudden I look up and around me and where did the mountain go and I turn around and I look behind me and it has passed so many times that has happened to me. And that's what God is promising Zerubbabel here, and it's what He's promising you, and He's promising me. There will be mountains in our lives. Somebody lied to us one day when we were little children in Sunday school and told us that if you follow Jesus, you won't have any obstacles in your life. 
I want to meet the Christian who hasn't had any obstacles in their life because they follow Jesus. Certainly, it's not going to be any of the martyrs. Certainly, it's not going to be St. George who was tortured for seven years. Certainly, it's not going to be St. Catherine who they put on the wheel to crush her to bits. Certainly, it's not going to be St. Moses who struggled fiercely against his lusts and his demons and refused to sleep for eight long years. He did not sleep willingly. It's not going to be any of the saints I've ever heard of that the moment they felt they loved Jesus, everything was peachy and everything was fine. Rather, very much the opposite. There continue to be obstacles in our lives. Sometimes there are more obstacles than before we knew Jesus. Sometimes the demons start to attack us even more than there was before. But you see, these become, rather than becoming an opportunity for defeat, they become an opportunity for victory of Christ. But Jesus isn't going to take us and park us in the bleachers, you know, in the Rogers Stadium, right? And the, the furthest possible away from the field, right? Fight the battle for us and then bring us down to share in the glory. That would be so fake. That would be so artificial. No, we have to be in the ring. We're in the boxing ring right in there in the fight but jesus is there with us don't expect for the obstacles to disappear expect for the obstacles to be there and to come but expect him to flatten them for you as you go now in speaking about this god does these things in two very different ways and don't ask me to tell you how he chooses to do what when because i don't know sometimes he, you're standing in front of the Red Sea, and the Red Sea is before you, and Pharaoh is closing in behind you, and for as far as you can tell, you're going to be Pharaoh's dinner tonight, right? And all of a sudden, the Red Sea parts before you, a pillar of fire is behind you, you cross safely, Pharaoh follows, and he gets crushed by the Red Sea as it closes in on him, and he is drowned. Pharaoh here being the demons, Satan, Satan, difficulties and problems in life. So problems will come, but God opens a way before you where there was no way before. Sometimes God does that. That's what he did with Moses. Sometimes, about 40 years later, he does something different, like what he did with Joshua. He told them, have the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going to walk through the Jordan. And as the Jordan River is rushing through, it's a strong river with a strong current, as they put their feet in the water, the water will stop. So wherever the priests put their feet in the water, the water would stop. But they had to put their feet in the water before it stopped. With Moses, the Red Sea parted and they could see the path the whole way through. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes, and in my life it's been more of the latter, more of the time it's kind of like Joshua. You have to put one foot in the water. You, you have to be like St. Peter. You have to walk out of the jump out of the boat and walk on the water before you start seeing the hand of god but in any event in any event he's saying that you will see the hand of god what's this business of the capstone the capstone is the last stone which is placed when you're building a wall right it's like the crown of the wall Right? And so he's saying, he's saying this temple that you're building, one day Zerubbabel is going to come out and he's going to put that last stone there. God is promising him and he's promising you and he's promising me what we find in Philippians 1.6 that the good work which God has began, he will complete it in you and in me. 
And when he does that, the people will shout grace, grace, grace to it. Why will they shout twice? The fathers tell us they will shout twice because the grace will be revealed both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to all the people of the earth. Those who loved God and those who hated him, all of them will one day, friend and foe, all of them will one day concede that Christ has been victorious. So that's the bit about the lampstand. Then after that comes, that's the first half, the second half of the chapter is um, a word of encouragement to Zerubbabel. So now we're at uh, uh, verse 8. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of temp the temple, and his hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. He's saying, the work which you be began, you will finish. Don't worry. You're going to make it to the finish line. All of us need a word of encouragement. Uh, a friend of mine runs marathons. Um, and uh, let's just call him, for the sake of anonymity, let's just call him, I don't know, uh, Lewis, right? I don't know any Lewises, so, right? So, uh, and so his, his wife and daughters ride in their, in, his, in their SUV and they make little markers where they stop along the road, right, to meet him, right? And they, they, call, it, they call it the Lewis Mobile. And they all keep their windows down and they shout and they cheer him on and he has little daughters like I do, and they encourage him, right? Um, and so God is your Lewis mobile. God is your encouragement. He's the one shouting to you along the way and cheering you on. He's che your cheerleader with pom-poms. He's the one who's shouting your name. Can you imagine Zephaniah 3.17? It says, he will rejoice over you with singing. Can you imagine that? Think with me about that for a second. God in heaven is rejoicing while singing your name. Here, he's rejoicing in you and telling you, you're going to make it to the finish line. That which you began, you will finish. Apply that to your spiritual life. Apply it to your struggle in virtue. Apply it to your struggle over sin. Apply this, apply this to whatever you wish in regards to the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, that which what you began, you will complete. You will see it to completion. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Right? And if you remember the words that David said to Solomon when he was going to, when he, when he charged him to build the temple, he told him, Be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed. For the Lord God, my God, will be with you and he will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work and the service of the house of the Lord. Now, if we go to verse 10, he knows, God knows what you're thinking. You're thinking, you're thinking, yeah, maybe, Father John, maybe you're talking to the person next to me. Maybe they're strong or they're spiritual or they pray or they fast. I'm kind of like weak and yeah, I falter and I don't really, you know, I'm not really that, that strong. I'm not really that good. Maybe the guy next to me, maybe God is promising him that he will see it to completion. Look at verse 10. He knows, he knows exactly what we're thinking and he's got the rebuttal ready. For who has despised the day of small things? 
For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line and the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout all the earth. He says, you have despised the day of small things. Contextually, what is he speaking of? When they came to lay the cornerstone, if you look in Ezra, I'll find you the reference exactly. In Ezra, there's a very conflicting passage. It's Ezra chapter 3. I believe it's verse 10. But anyways, there's a very conflicting passage. When they came to lay the cornerstone of the temple 15 years prior, right? Some people jumped for joy and rejoiced. And other people who remembered the former glory, it says, of the temple. They were around. They were old enough to have seen the temple of Solomon. And they saw them laying this cornerstone. And they were saying, man, it's not going to be like it was before. It's not going to be like it was before. And I'll be honest with you, I hate that attitude. I hate that negativity. But in a certain sense, who can blame them? You have these people who were captives for 70 years, who were sent back by the emperor to rebuild whatever they're able to rebuild. And they're using whatever little resources they have. They have no political power. They have no army. They have no organized government. They have, they have nothing. Right? What did Solomon have to build the temple? Well, David wanted to build the temple, and God told him no. So David had been amassing supplies upon supplies upon supplies. He had so much gold, they stopped counting how much. Like, and he was saving it for the building of the temple. And so he charged Solomon to build. I've been collecting all this for you to build it. He had unlimited resources unlimited power. He was, the, he was the largest reigning king at the time. He had the largest kingdom in his time was the kingdom of Solomon. He was the wisest man on the face of the earth. Military power, political power, peace upon all his borders. In the in days of Solomon, there was peace along all of his borders. He had many nations which paid taxes and tribute to him. And he built a glorious temple. So they were naturally saying, like, look at what all of Solomon had, and he built a glorious temple. Now we're slaves who were just recently set free. What are we going to build? What are we going to build? God is telling them, do not despise small things. And God is saying to you, do not despise small things. And maybe you look back on your spiritual life when you were younger, when you were more fiery, when you were more committed, when you were more in tune with God. Maybe you look back on times prior when you were more committed to God, when you were more in tune with Him and so on and so on, and you think to yourself, in those days, in those days, things were much better. And what could I possibly ever build? What could I possibly ever do now? What could I possibly ever do now in my spiritual life compared to what I did in the past? 
Maybe you don't look back on your spiritual life, but you look back on your material life, you feel that you're, 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 you're older, or you have less time, or maybe you think to yourself, when I was a student, I had more time and more energy and more this and more that. Now, God is telling us, don't look back. Don't look back at the former times and say, and say those were better times, those were bigger times, those were greater times. No, because not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the spirit of God, which was here yesterday, is here today and tomorrow and forevermore. Speaking not about the spirit, but about the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 8, another one to memorize. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He is faithful. He will continue to be faithful. Don't worry. Don't despise the little things. Ezra 3, 10, 13 is that bit that says that some people rejoiced and some people were moaning and groaning. So much so that people who were standing afar couldn't tell whether these people were happy or sad. God doesn't want us to be like that. That's very sad. That's very sad. Don't rejoice in the resurrection of Christ and forget about death. Forget about the obstacles. God will overcome them. We're wrapping up now. We're wrapping up now. In Haggai 2.5, it says, According to the word that I have covenant with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Remember, Haggai was writing at the same time to the same people in the same context about rebuilding the temple, right? But he was giving them a word of rebuke, telling them, why have you slackened in rebuilding the temple? Haggai 2.5, he says, my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. I'm still here. I'm still with you. I'm going to carry you through to the end. You will see it to completion, right? And then the last little bit, then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I, I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles, the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered and said, do, not, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the, of the whole earth. These are the anointed ones, anointed here, uh, the word anointed here means is chrism. The, the Hebrew word for it is Messiah, Messiah, anointed, right? The Christ. You and I are anointed with the holy chrism. You and I, and I have received the Holy Spirit of God. Do not fear. The message of this whole chapter is God is pouring His Spirit, the oil, into you with an unlimited supply. No more a supply that, that finishes and you have to refill. If it, it's not a car that you have to go and fill up gas and you run out of gas and you have to go back to the gas station. No, you have unlimited supply. Olive, olive trees are pouring the oil into you that you can take that material thing, the Word of God, that you can take the seven branches with the seven pipes going into them are the seven sacraments that are pouring Holy Spirit power into you. The seven pipes coming from the bowl, pouring this, the oil into the lampstand that you can be this bright shining lamp that as Jesus says, I am the light of the world, we also can be the light of the world like he says to us, to be the light of the world, the salt of, uh, and the salt of the earth. Glory be to God forever and ever. Our Father who art in heaven.